0: Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast presented by DaVinci Academy. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper. This episode is a part of our DaVinci Innovators series, which feature physicians, inventors, and entrepreneurs working on innovative medical technology. Our guests for these episodes discuss developing new medical technology, building med tech companies, and advice for anyone going through the process of medical innovation. For this episode, I sit down with Dr. Amy Baxter founder and CEO of Pain Care Labs in Atlanta, Georgia. Pain Care Labs is a company that has developed two pain management devices that use mechanical stimulation. Dr. Baxter practiced as a pediatric emergency medicine physician for over 20 years. In that time, she authored multiple first author publications, textbook chapters, and continues to lecture nationally and internationally on pain management. She invented the mechanical stimulation device Buzzy For Children with Needle Phobia When Receiving Vaccinations, a device she pitched on Shark Tank, which we will hear more about during the podcast episode. Recently, Dr. Baxter invented VibraCool, a device for musculoskeletal pain and pain control after orthopedic procedures. And now, my interview with Dr. Amy Baxter, founder and CEO of Pain Care Labs. Okay, everybody. Welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm here this week with Dr. Amy Baxter, the founder and CEO of Pain Care Labs, uh, who has also been trained as an emergency medicine physician, as she'll tell you guys about. So Amy, welcome to the show. Appreciate you taking time to do this.
1: Dr. Cooper, it is a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So maybe give us a little bit of background. We were just talking before we started recording about your educational background, um, your clinical training and kind of what area of medicine you were, you were focused on uh, before you now have are running pain care labs.
1: Yes. Before vibration derailed my career. Um, <laughs> so a pediatric emergency doctor always wanted to be a doctor, but I did a lot of junior achievement in high school. And so I ended up taking a year off between my pediatrics residency um, between med school and my pediatrics residency, to work at Kaplan Test Prep. So I was the brand manager in New York for a year. Then I went back to medicine. I was like, all right, that was just a, a small deviance into education. And even then, I knew I wanted to do emergency because, well, kids are boring. So I so I did a child abuse fellowship at Cincinnati Children's because I got interested in research and wanted to finish that up. I did emergency fellowship, peds emergency in Norfolk, Virginia. Then I did a research fellowship in Dallas at UT Southwestern while I was uh, my first attending gig. Then my husband's like, okay, now you need to get a real job. so, (laughs) So we came up to Atlanta where most of my clinical time was doing procedural sedation.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. So you, you trained, I know PEDS ER, you can either go the adult ER route and then do a PEDS fellowship, right? So, and then obviously the other route is the one you went for. So you were basically a board side of certified pediatrician and then did additional training in uh, emergency care for, for children, right?
1: Right. So at one point I was triple board uh, oh, wow. uh, eligible because uh, child abuse boards and PEDS emergency boards and uh, PEDS boards.
0: Gotcha. And so you, you did full time. Cause I know some people will mix like do some outpatient peds and then do ER. So you did hundred percent ER. It sounds like,
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, seriously. Yeah. I mean, well, it's for me. And, and I also can handle tragedy when it's somebody, I don't know that well, but if it was a kid I'd seen since they grew up, I didn't want to watch them get cancer and die. I didn't want to miss them getting cancer and then watch mm-hmm. them die. So it was, I've also really always loved procedures. Mm-hmm. And so I, the one thing I quit practicing spoiler, I quit practicing in 2016. Um, I miss LPs and I miss sewing things up.
0: Awesome. Those are bread and butter, you know, ER, ER procedures. Those are, those are fun.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, nurse, I still love nursemaid's elbows. I like intubating. I like a bunch of these, but procedures, procedures and fixing things and being very three-dimensional and tactical was always where it was at for me.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. And were you at a a level one trauma center or were you, uh, what type of ER did you practice in?
1: So when I was at UT Southwestern, yeah, we were level one. And in fact, the acuity was uh, like nothing else I've ever seen. I mean, I gave the best care I've ever given there. And so it was, we'd have RSVCs and, you know, three intubations right back to back. You've got status asthmaticus. You've got people who come in with a, a, Shunt that's gotten sucked up into their lungs, so all of a sudden they've got like a a portal cavity that's all switched over, and you know you're jamming chest tubes in. It was it was it was badass. Um, Wow, yeah. (laughs) So so then when I came to Atlanta, which I did because I'd gotten interested in pain and research, and so in Atlanta there was a database that I really wanted, and there's a little bit of conservatism in the hospital too. They wouldn't let me do a lot of things I was capable of because I was an emergency doctor. You know, it's like, oh, you can't run our pain team, even if the pain team wants you, because you don't, you're not an anesthesiologist. Oh, you can't start a sedation service because you're not an anesthesiologist. Mm-hmm. And so, Atlanta was a lot easier to do the research I wanted, be on the pain service, and to do procedural sedation without having those kind of inculcated uh, guidelines and rules that were were barriers.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. And it sounds like you were fairly academic as well. Like you were, you were doing research, you had these kind of non-clinical interests as well early on in your career.
1: To be honest, that's still where my my you could say my heart lies, but the reality is it's where my ego lies. I mean, I am I am most proud of my discoveries, I'm most proud of the research and adding to that part of the field. You know, when I die, my husband and I talk about what we're going to have on our tombstones. And I say that I'm going to have a little bee and a barfing face, because (laughs) one of the first things I did was validate the the Baxter's uh, animated retching faces scale. So instead of having a a faces scale for pain, Mm -hmm. it's not as stupid an idea as a lot of people think it is. But I thought it'd be hysterically funny to have a puking face <laughs> at the end and go, this is how sick your
2: stomach
1: are you? And um, and the more I thought about it, the more I was like, you know, actually nutrition matters and and it's hard to tell if someone's nauseous or you can be nauseous for days and never throw up. And most mm-hmm. of the time, all people do this was uh, look at how many times somebody barfed. So um, so I thought also having an eponymous scale with and getting pediatrics high impact factor journal to publish an article with Baxter's animated retching faces. Well, what's not to love?
2: So <laughs> oh wow, look right. at that.
1: They're adorable. That's... And and look, and there's a little hidden barfing face.
2: <laughs> oh man. Um yeah, and
1: uh yeah. So and and they're now translated in three languages and they're oh, validated wow. and they've got excellent discriminant validity and convergent validity and um you know so i learned how to do that too so that was a really cool thing so but but research was always more what i was passionate about because if you want to change the world which i think a lot of doctors grow up wanting that some people yeah. want to take care of people i wanted to change the world and if you're going to do that you're going to save lives or you're going to do legislation or you're going to do research um, sure. so so that's where i felt like you know for a bigger bang for your buck changing how people think about things was a a goal worth attaining.
0: Sure. Sure. No, that makes, you know, obviously we make a big impact, you know, patient to patient, but the bigger impacts certainly are in, you know, things that you can translate across, you know, institutions and countries and all that, I guess kind of, I feel like that's a good segue into, so tell us about pain care labs, like how, you know, what was the, Inspiration for you starting that company. You said you know obviously you had this early research interest in pain, uh, pain management, and pain care. You know, maybe tell us the, you know kind of the early days of how you got started with that.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, my my first research that got funded was the Barf scale, and that was funded by a cancer group. But the first thing I got published was doing another of my loves, at LP, and doing a study on how topical anesthetics actually improved accuracy because I was was trained in the 90s and I believed in the fifth vital sign and I believed you have to stay ahead of pain. And so it was always crazy to me that doctors would go in and do an LP on a baby and not bother to put topical anesthetic on or even use the lidocaine that was in the kit. You know, just Mm -hmm. why are we not doing this? And it was obviously because it's faster if you just hold them down and don't do anything else. And, and just stick the needle in. So my first published paper was proving that most residents don't use topical anesthetic at the time. And so I had to do that before the IRB would let me do a study on proving that I didn't want to prove that decreased pain because doctors don't care enough to change their behaviors, but they would change their behaviors based on success rate. So mm-hmm. I did a big study and proved that indeed, if you use topical anesthetics, the babies wiggle less and you are more likely to get a champagne tap. So that was the combination of research and pain that got me started. I launched from that into a lot of research on topical anesthetics and needle pain. And when my own son, whose name is just Max.
0: Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah.
1: But when my oldest was, was when it was time for him to get his four-year-old vaccines, I was like, I'm going to rock this. I know exactly how long to leave on the top of an what to do for distraction, how well, all of this stuff. And the nurse was like, yeah, you better sit there and be still. This is really going to hurt. <laughs> and as I was about to go um, actually and tell her how wrong that was, uh, nope, she jammed him home and I didn't have a chance to do anything. And they really did hurt. And he became afraid of needles. He went out I mean, we were both sort of betrayed by the whole event. And he went out and vomited afterwards. And then he was afraid to go to the doctor. Oh, so wow. the beginning of this journey was when my son is old enough to drive himself to the doctor, he will not. <laughs> <And so laughs> if I'm in the system and I could not protect him and also couldn't stop him from becoming afraid of doctors. Then what is anybody who's not a physician going to do? How are we going to fix this problem? So that was really the original thing was coming up with a way to block pain. Then I realized that it wasn't enough to block pain; you had to block fear. Then I got—I um, wanted to—I I invented this device coming home from an emergency shift. I'd been thinking about, you know, the gate control thing, like you burn your finger and you stick it under cold water, or you bump mm-hmm. your hand and you rub it, and how could we? Manifest that in a very focal area for needle pain. So, driving home from the emergency department in the morning after a night shift, my hands were on the steering wheel, and our our wheels were unbalanced because who has time to get your tires rotated, really? And and so, by the time I reached to the door of my house, my hand was numb.
0: Oh, because it's been vibrating the whole way home. <laughs>
1: vibrating the whole way. So it was like. This is the answer. It's vibrators. It is not running water. it is not cold. it's none of those things. Turned out actually, it is cold and vibration for for a deep I am. But for general pain, um, vibration itself, if you got the right frequency is the answer. Nikola Tesla said that if you understand energy frequency and vibration, you have the secrets of the universe. And God bless him, he's got a great car and he's got the right answer yeah, uh, I'll, I'll tell more, but I want to give you a chance to ask a question before I, I go into the the chapter two of my, my research and uh, medical device world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you've, you've told some of the kind of the early story about it, you know, did you have any formal training as an engineer? Like, how did you go about like, build, so you have this idea for this device, you're a practicing physician. How did you go about like, you know, designing it? Did you assemble a team early? Was it more just kind of maybe kind of drawing some pictures out and seeing what some of your colleagues thought, like maybe take us through that process of like how you got that first kind of iterations of the device drawn out and everything.
1: You know, I've done a lot of these podcasts and until the second, I'd never put together, Maxwell, that part of the deal was I rewrote the physics books for Kaplan. And they have electrical um, physics as part of those books. And I had to study more because I hadn't known as much about that. When I was in ninth grade, I was really into trains and switches and lights and um, wiring things. And so I did learn how to solder and I did put together you know, really simple circuits for electricity and you know, nudging around with that. But, but I think it was learning a little bit more about it when I did the MCAT books that the two of those things came together to make me feel confident enough to take apart cell phones and figure out what made things vibrate and how that worked. Mm-hmm. And what really was interesting and what finally ended up making the most difference, um, first of all, funny story, trying to find parts was the hardest thing i wrote doc johnson which is a fine purveyor of marital aids mm-hmm. and uh said you know what vibrating motors do you use and i never wrote back and finally i went to <laughs> a year in atlanta i went to starship on uh cheshire bridge which is a sex toy shop oh wow <laughs> I went with two graduate students so i'd been at georgia tech and i was like look i i and i know vibration works because i've done this i've made this thing i put it together um, but I can't replicate it and I can't buy enough motors. I don't know how to mass produce this. Mm-hmm. I'm almost ready to go down to the starship and, and buy vibrators and take them apart. And so this very taciturn Midwestern guy was like, well, that'd probably work. <laughs> and so and he had two graduate students and I was like, well, you know, I got a car, you guys got time. So the two graduate students got in the car with me and I, you know, using my, all my own money at this point. And so I asked the lady up front, what's on sale. And she's like, Oh girl, I like how you shop. And, um, and mind you, you know, so I'm here with these two, like 10 years younger than me, graduate student guys. She pointed to the back. I bought this bunch of stuff. Um, we took them home, took them apart. And then, well, they went back to their dorms or whatever, but I, I took them home and took it apart and I found a serial number on the motor. And that was what let me Google. And I was like, okay, it's a a cylinder motor. It's not a vibrating motor. That's why I couldn't find it. And once Mm -hmm. I knew cylinder motor was the name I was looking for, then I was able to to backtrack, see what the frequency was of what we were using, find other places making motors. And then I could do some R&D and putter around with it. But it's super easy to put um, Batteries and a motor together. If you've got wires, I mean, if the motor comes with wires on it, then you mm-hmm. can jury rig that puppy and just you know use electrical tape, and it's super easy. So that part was not difficult. Anybody can do that. It was just a matter of having the confidence to do it, which I had from ninth grade, puttering around with train tracks and and light switches. So that awesome. part was easy.
0: That's fascinating. So I mean, you were you were literally like just you know, in your garage or in your basement, like tinkering around with these, you know, these different devices and kind of figuring out what worked and what didn't, um, was that, I guess, had you made any formal designs for this yet? Or were you just kind of at this stage is still kind of piecing together, how this could be even put together in, in, in your mind?
1: Yeah, this was you know, one of the four or five different parts where I was like, all right, forget this. I'm, I'm done. I'm going back to just doctor <laughs> Uh, Part one was, I don't know how to source motors. Part two was, I don't know how to make any of the items you see around the house. And what happened with that one was, um, at the time, we didn't have 3D printing. We had something called stereolithography, which is where you zap a pot of resin with lasers that you've put together in your little 3D format. Um, And so you get a very fragile, but three-dimensional thing that you can use. So much less useful than our 3d printing now, but the same kind of idea. So we made this solid form and I still liked the ice and the motion thing. So I had, um, the balloon animals you make, I made, I put, you know, would put some water in it and then tie it together and make a little donut out of it and put it on the bottom of a pedestal and had to learn so much about the physics of vibration and torque and momentum and energy and which direction it goes in and all of that kind of stuff. But, um, but I almost quit when I found that, you know, we did a trial with this at children's investigator initiated. I had one, uh, one phlebotomist and hand bless her heart. She, and I had a whole bunch of people who worked around children's who were willing to come in and have us try cold spray on one hand and vibration on the other. And, um, so she poked everybody and buzzy, which was the device we, you know, cause, uh, The first prototype I had was yellow and black from a yellow and black personal massager, the TurboFlex 4000. So it was always a yellow and black thing. So Buzzy made sense, Mm -hmm. Um, but it worked and it was twice as effective as cold spray. So it's like rock and roll. Let's just go manufacture these and we'll put it out there. And our designer that we'd met in town trying to find an industrial designer who could really take it the distance. Um, he said, oh no, 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 no. You have to make a steel tool that has very thin, equally spaced walls. And then you can do injection molding in the plastic, but you can't make a solid like that. And I was like, what? I've already made <laughs> such so money and now I've got to make a tool and I've got to put, no, I'm done. I'm over it. And they called me back and they said, well, don't give up yet. And they called me back a day later and said, we really believe in your product. We really think it's important. Um, And by that time, I'd already found out about the SBIR, the NIH Small Business Innovative Research Grants. Mm -hmm. And so I was planning to go for one. They said, we believe in the product. We think you're going to get the grant. We will help do the injection mold CAD drawings. And if you get the grant, make us whole. If you don't, it's still our contribution to the world. So that was awesome. That was really uh, a great thing. The interesting thing there, if you're wanting to play this game at home, is that there are a lot of different design groups. So industrial design is what you want to look for. Um, There there are a bunch, and specifically one that's done medical device work, Mm -hmm. because there are a bunch of finicky things you got to keep track of if you're doing a medical device, specifically one that may be a class two or three, which means it's either invasive, potentially dangerous, or implanted. And so uh, we're only class one, arguably we should be class two, but we're only class one. So it's a much less onerous burden of regulatory work. But if you are going to do something that's going to be a catheter or you're going to be a new kind of IV or something where it's going to be under the skin implanted in people, then you need to keep track of the design methodology that you go through and an industrial design group is going to know how to do that incubators are going to be connected with people that know how to do that but i do think that making yourself a prototype and proving to yourself that the prototype actually works and then starting to source somebody who can help you make it real that's the move
0: so you've you did some research on this, you moved in, you had this idea, you started tinkering around, you made a prototype, it sounds like, and then you were, did a clinical study within your own institution, you found it worked great. And then the next step was, I think it sounds like you, you realized you needed more funding. And so then you went for, like you said, the SBIR grants, maybe tell us a little bit about those grants, which I think are, uh, you know, an interesting funding mechanism, which I guess, for one, from what I understand, they're grants from the government. So they're not like getting funding from an angel investor or venture capital where they're going to take equity up front, um, which would maybe be one advantage of those, I guess, maybe take us through like how, and what you thought made you self position yourself to be successful for getting one of those grants. Cause I imagine they're fairly competitive.
1: Yeah. So the word you're looking for is non-dilutive. So yes, non-dilutive yes. funds are funds you don't have to pay back and you don't owe anybody anything for them. SBIR is a program that was started during the Reagan era, and it is a federally mandated requirement that 2.5 to 3% of all of the money that DOD, CDC, NIH, et cetera, spend have to be earmarked for small businesses. This doesn't mean that they're development grants. These are still science R&D grants, but getting a phase one, which is currently up to about $150,000 is a, a fairly low bar and it's lower than like an equivalent um, R21 or something. You know, there's in, in academic NIH stuff, there's some grants where it's like, oh, he's applied three times, just give him an R21. Um, whereas an R01 is more the equivalent of an SBIR fast track. The R01 is, this is, this is potentially groundbreaking. You've got a whole bunch of um, carry-on studies. You know, this works, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we've got milestones. That is an SBIR fast track. So that's when you know where you're going. And it's not just pure throwing spaghetti at a wall. It's, it's a well-reasoned clinical question. And you also have the chops to answer it. If you are not in medicine, then, and you have a business, you can partner with the university to do something called a, a, an STTR which is a technology transfer version of the SBIR. And you can look it up online and it's really easy to find information about it. There are three different sessions a year where you can apply for it. And then when you submit it through the portals in NIH, because I haven't done any of the DODs or the other institutions, but that goes to a scientific review group. And so then you have people like me who either are scientists or entrepreneurs or manufacturers or clinicians or all of them at the same time. And we look at the feasibility of what you're wanting to do, uh, the likelihood that it'll add to science, how innovative it is and how much impact it will have on public health. So that mechanism was suggested to me. Honestly, I would have gone for an R21 or an R01 if I were still at an academic institution. But because I went to Scottish right, and I couldn't at the time, I couldn't get a faculty position because there was acrimony between Scottish and Eggleston because now it's all fine. But at the time mm-hmm. there was all of this frustration. And so they wouldn't, they, they said, no, no, you guys don't do research. You guys are community pediatricians. And I couldn't get a faculty position. Mm-hmm. So that was why I went for the SBIR.
0: Gotcha. Versus the STTR. You mentioned.
1: I mean, the thing is, if you are at most institutions, they own your IP. And so the intellectual property, they're going to help you develop it, but they also own it. So, Emory, um, Georgia Tech, any of those, I happen to be lucky. I mean, ish, it's a lot of good it's done me so far, but I happen to be lucky from an IP standpoint because Scottish Wright was, we were private practice emergency doctors doing procedural sedation that were contracted by the hospital. So I was able to write into my contract with the pediatric emergency guys, Hey, I invented this thing. I don't know, maybe it'll be something, but I just want to make sure it's called out that, that I own all the IP for it. And they're like, yes, yeah, sure, whatever.
2: Gotcha.
1: That's that is definitely, I think that in general, um, physicians are more enamored of their own ideas than the marketplaces. So really, it's worth going ahead and letting your institution help you as much as possible with this stuff, because it's really hard. And your institution is going to be decent to you if you come up with something that's a total multi-million dollar thing, <laughs> billions and millions of dollars, you're going to get enough of a slice that's more money than you can spend in your lifetime anyway. So I think that it's worth getting the help that you can get from institutions. The problem is if you're at an institution that's going to bog down your progressing with your idea because of politics or because they don't have a really good system for it, that's the only situation where I think that I would try to go outside your institution. But if you most places now are realizing that that the big brains on their doctors are worth capitalizing on. So most, most big hospital systems have an innovation department and can actually be helpful because they're sort of like in, you know, baked in, uh, innovation incubators.
2: Gotcha. Then, gotcha.
1: One thing that is, um, really interesting and that makes it harder. I have found is that what we're doing is actually a, a physiologic breakthrough based on the science that's been discovered, but it looks low tech. It's, there are a couple things about what we're doing that are really bad ideas from a business standpoint. So one of them is that I wanted to make my devices reusable because it was the right thing to do, and mm-hmm. I wasn't going to screw kids with cancer and make them rent our devices or make them have a Gillette model and have to throw away the ice packs every week or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, so starting with Buzzy for needle pain that was um, kind of a non-starter for trying to get investment or for getting distribution because nobody cared about needle vein and those who did care they're going to buy one unit and it's totally reusable so we would not be where we are if it weren't for child life because child life workers came on as huge champions and when they started doing it then other people in endocrine and rheumatology and drug companies started looking at what we were doing but the other big reason that was great was because we were so under the radar because nobody cared about needle pain. And it wasn't until 2013, 14, 15 that we had a lot of our patients who were using it for their Humira injections or adults using it for their IVF injections or for vaccines. Um, and then they were also using it for their hip pain and using it for their knee pain and using it for their headaches. And so all of these extra pain pain musculoskeletal indications turned out to be much more important when the opioid crisis hit. Sure. Because we'd had the space to ourselves for a decade, oh, we got so many patents. We have so many articles on sharp A-delta pain. And now it's just that issue I mentioned that people don't understand that this is very different from a massager. And mm-hmm. so because the mechanism is a cylinder motor, they think it's the same as every other cylinder motor. And trying to get Hicks picks, um, Centers Medicaid and Medicare to pay for stuff when it's based on new science and the whole frequency, energy and vibration thing. The reason our stuff works is because TENS units, which are trying to do gate control, but failing like Charlie Brown hitting Lucy's football every time, it just doesn't work very well. The reason it doesn't work is part of what I found out in my research. And that is that if you bang your hand with a hammer, you don't lightly stroke it, you shake it like crazy Mm -hmm. to stop the pain. The mechanoreceptor that deals with pain is the Pacinian corpuscle. 90% of gate control comes from the motion and position sense nerve, and it's deeper, and it requires a frequency that is faster than what TENS does. So Mm -hmm. TENS is girdering around like, you know, on the surface between two electrodes, but if you want to get to the botanians, you've got to have something perpendicular to put the torque deeper into the skin or joint, and it has to be 200 Hertz. So Mm -hmm. tens units is digging in the wrong place. And that's why they don't, that's why they disappoint. I mean, they're, they're good if, if uh, menthol is going to help, you know, that that's also a low frequency, superficial messner core corpuscle deal. But if you want really intense needles, surgery, opioid, broken leg, that's when you got to have 200 Hertz and you've got to have it oriented in the right direction.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So you successfully get this, uh, SBIR grant. You've now developed your, I imagine you used that to develop your prototype further, Maybe take us through kind of the timeline, you know, where did you, you know, you're focused on needle pain and then not, as you said, you eventually evolved to focusing on some musculoskeletal. Did you, was that enough to get you through where you, did you go and get more funding or kind of maybe take us through that and like the early of forming the business and kind of making that decision of, you know, dedicating more of your time towards that versus your clinical time. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I wasn't ever intending to quit practicing medicine. And my idea was someone will think this is awesome. They will pay me enough money to take six months off and drink pink umbrella drinks on some tropical place. And then I will go back to continuing to add to my bibliography. What had happened was um, that, the, that no one cared enough about needle pain to matter. And I also discovered as part of my SBIR money, I discovered that we had a huge increase in needle phobia, that needle phobia had gone from 25% of kids to like 65%. So I, at the time, uh, you know, and yeah, Buzzy was finished and Buzzy was starting to sell. And I, we, we found manufacturers from our industrial design group and the first thousand were great. The next 5,000 had all these problems and So we moved it to the US and then the quality in Georgia was terrible. And so we moved it back to China and and all of these things I'm learning on the side, but I didn't want to quit practicing medicine. But then I realized that we had this problem with needle fear. So I actually um, went on Shark Tank to raise awareness of needle fear. What if we have a pandemic and people won't get vaccinated because they're afraid of needles? No, would yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I published articles about this. I did Ted talks about this. And it's like, uh, I got so frustrated finally, it's just like, all right, forget it. I'm, I'm don't even care. And, and then my colleague in the emergency room used the device to not take opioids after a total knee replacement. And I realized Ermagerd, my friend who died in high school when I mean, she died after high school, but, but my best friend in high school Um, died of an opioid overdose. And I was always just furious with her for being such an idiot. And I did not understand what it is to have uh, a rapid metabolizing cytochrome P450 gene. I did not realize what opioids could do because I was eating all this stuff that Sackler Labs was feeding us with our lasagna in the dark post-call. And I believed it. And so I Mm -hmm. I was very much a, a pain advocate and, and proselytizer pain management. Um, so when this happened for him, uh, I was at this point of being frustrated with needle. You know, I was, I was almost ready to walk away from the company. Cause it's like, you know, just put them on Amazon and, and not even, you know, just have this passive income source. Sure. But, but then this happened and I realized this is a much bigger deal. Maybe this is what I'm here for. And, and I know that it works so I can figure out how to, make this into something that more people can use. This was when, um, just to your point, you know, I wanted to get it tested in adults because if things that are for children, um, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare will never pay for. Their mandate is for seniors. They do not care at all about any research done in children, so they will never pay for a buzzy. But I realized this was something, you know, getting adult studies done in this would be useful. So I went to the NIH again and applied for it for total knee replacements, which is what my colleague had had it, had used it for. And even though they were very worried about opioids, they're like, yeah, but this already works. You know, at that point, there were like 30 studies proving it it blocks sharp pain. Mm -hmm. Um, We funded this. We know it would work for knee pain we're not going to fund it. So it was like, okay, fine. Then I'm going to do a grant for low back pain and opioid use. So that got funded. So I got another 1.7 million from the SBIR to another fast track to do the R and D for the low back pain device, which we start our trials tomorrow. I'm flying up to DC to get rolling with them. Oh,
0: congrats. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, you know, that whole thing about the vibration frequencies turns out harmonics actually matter also. So mm. you put a couple different frequencies next to each other and then you run them in different cycles so that they magnify at different places. You can actually people can can get the vibration to block out the pain signal on a bone, on a nerve, on a muscle, um, just depending on what frequency you're spinning them at. So, um, and then we've got heat and cold and I know just so much more about how the brain processes pain now, Mm. but from a development standpoint, I definitely needed the extra money and, um, and then COVID hit and we did went back into advocating for awareness of needle fear and why we have more needle fear now and all that sort of stuff. So I got sucked back into that for a little bit and now I'm square on in physical therapy and pain relief, and using the device instead of opioids after surgery, and all this good stuff, and trying to to maximize what we know about how the brain's connected, how pain is perceived, in chronic pain and acute pain, how to activate your own endogenous opioids, all of this all this stuff is very fun.
0: Awesome, awesome. Well, the first I I don't want to let you uh, get away with without without asking about the Shark Tank because that's just you know a very I'm, I'm sure you've told this story a million times, but Maybe tell us briefly that story. Uh, you know, I actually watched your clip on YouTube before I before I interviewed you. I watched your your pitch. Um, was that was that the first time you ever pitched like to those type of investors, or had had you had much experience doing that? Or um, I guess maybe t- walk us through that that whole thing. And like you said, obviously, at least brought you a lot of national attention. Uh- <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: it was a total mental bungee jump. Um, <laughs> just this, this you know. Ter, I learned the business so well. I mean, I had everything memorized. Definitely was a big elevator for understanding what are my margins? What are my margins then? What are the landed costs? What's FOB mean? You know, all of these kinds of businessy things. And the outcome was um, that... It's not like pitching in a, in a pitch room. And I'm going to be honest here. We're profitable and we bootstrapped. And so you know how women only get 3% of VC money. And I, I, for a variety of reasons, I refuse to make it disposable. Um, I didn't, I, I think the way that we have our medical device system in this country is, is hurts people and, mm-hmm. and the cost of things and the way that the whole You know, people won't distribute a medical device unless you're making it 10 times as expensive as it is to make because how much it costs for regulatory and because the rep who's showing it to the person who needs it won't show it unless it's covered by Medicaid or over $300. So these are problems and I wasn't willing to capitulate. So we just made the money ourselves. We did not take any money from anybody. So I hadn't actually, I still haven't pitched per se. But for Shark Tank, it's a little different because, yeah, you have to have all your stuff memorized, but it's a very antagonistic on-screen kind of thing. You know, there's yeah. a, <laughs> they're trying to get your goat. They're trying to, to be um, intentionally provocative. And and also that particular thing, you have planned your pitch for six months, every week for six months, I had a meeting with the producers before I even knew for sure if I was going to go on Shark Tank. So I didn't let them know that needle fear and raising awareness of of needle phobia was my primary goal. I would have taken a deal with Barbara Cochran, but only because she had Ava the elephant, which was a thing for um, making kids take medicine. It was a one, two, three, open wide. So I was like, Ava, and buzzy, they can be buddies. They can be on the store at Kroger together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is the channel. It's already established. This will be great. And she was. She said they all. As my son told me recently, he said, "You know, I rewatched your episode. They were dropping a lot of truth bombs." <laughs> the first truth bomb is from Barbara Crocker, who said, "Consumer medical devices are a fool's errand. It is the worst business idea, and for that reason, I am out." <laughs> so she was not wrong, but, uh, yeah, you know, to have all of the regulatory of a consumer device and none of the 10 X on what it costs to make it, you know, not the best, uh, business strategy.
0: Gotcha. Well, from what i am saying, you, you did get some offers from some of the, uh, the other sharks on the, on the show, but you ended up not going with any of them. Is that right?
1: Yeah. First of all, it's the most expensive money you're ever going to take. In terms of what valuation they were going to, they were going to give the company a 2.5 million valuation, which is kind of ridiculous for a company that was already selling to Quest Diagnostics and to lab places. So um, I would have done it for a 5 million valuation. I think that would have been reasonable, but 2.5 was too low. And the value add that these investors were going to give they didn't have the market channels they didn't have the industry knowledge medical devices are hard and so that was the other reason um and the best thing about it though is now i know all of these sharks and so we have a a shark tank pals group and we have uh, you know on facebook and once your episode is aired then we're all like hey anybody got somebody who can go look at the docks in hong kong in real time i don't know if my ship is supposed to be loaded on is actually there hey anybody have somebody who can find me this kind of fabric I'm looking and you know anybody know when they're going to open up the Longshoreman um in, in LA because all of these ships are circling around you know anybody have a tool maker anybody um know this influencer yeah you know, all that kind of stuff so those things are just magnificent those are absolutely useful
0: that's really cool so even though you you know, didn't end up getting the, the offer you maybe wanted. It sounds like you definitely got some nice networking opportunities, definitely some publicity, obviously, um, which is pretty cool. Um, I want to ask something, of, you know, we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. When you made that decision to leave clinical practice, I, I imagine that was maybe maybe it wasn't, but it was one not made lightly because, you know, we spend so many years studying to do medicine and residency and then you finally make it, and then here you come up with this great idea. I mean, did you ever think of having like, you know, some people recommend bring a business person in to run like doctors aren't good business people. You should bring someone in who knows what they're doing. Quote unquote. Did you ever think about like bringing in someone else to run your company or, or was that more, you felt like, you know, you, uh, you know, clearly you were the best person for the job and, you know, I'm going to take this on full time, I guess kind of maybe walk us through that a little bit.
1: Yeah. um, I'm not the best person to do this. I would be much better if there were someone who was willing to make things disposable and make better business deals, all of those kind of things. I think also that because I was solo for so many years and didn't have a partner that bringing someone on would have been a a difficult play unless I was sure that they got what we were trying to do. Mm -hmm. And when I quit practicing medicine, and even now, I mean, I would be happy to bring someone on if there were somebody who was going to buy us out and get us on every medicine cabinet. That is the goal is, is this is a drug-free easy way to block pain of any kind. And we've got people using it for their frozen shoulder and for their knee pain and their arthritis and their plantar fasciitis. And there's just no place that doesn't benefit from this. If we made enough of these devices, but The the value of doing that when I quit practicing was not yet at fruition because I didn't know why it worked and how it worked at that time. I had to spend a couple of years synthesizing all of the research so they could get this other SBIR. If we were bought out now, that would be fabulous and somebody can do whatever they want to to get it out there. So I'm still actively more so than ever now open to collaborations or to having somebody step in and run the business. At this point, it's just that I've got so much that I have to do running it itself that stepping back to do, and this is another truth bomb from the sharks, like hiring people is really hard. And, And so, and it's true. And so even the people, the only times we've done a headhunter and paid money and brought those people in they haven't been able to deliver on what they said they haven't worked out they haven't gotten us i mean this is a really hard niche i don't think it's just that we're we're sucking that we're not um in every medicine cabinet yet it's really hard to Mm -hmm. introduce an entire new category so to have somebody who can do that um I think that, that I would still be delighted to to take in a business development person to have somebody do it. It's just that it has to be equitable for the sweat equity that, that I have in. So, you know, for somebody to come in, take a company, run with it, make everybody not pain-free, but um, give everybody power over pain. Yes. That'd be great to have somebody else do that. My ego is not in building a huge company, but I also don't want somebody to come in. Like I perceived the sharks to and say, all right. I'm not going to help. I'm not going to do anything, but I'll give you five hundred thousand dollars. Go to town.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, I think you make a really good point there. Finding the right fit for it's not just someone who maybe has a good resume or a good experience um, or some you know useful connections. It's also finding someone who aligns with your vision, what you want to do with the company. And um, I imagine that that's and like you said, hiring people. You know, in my own experience with my small startup, you know, we've had people come and go and you know, people come in and want to do it their way. And maybe that doesn't align with what you want to do. So I can imagine, especially like you said, you're, you know, it's a niche market. It's a new idea. It's, you know, it's not like you're coming up with some new pain drug or some new, like a catheter device where there's already, you, know, you could easily find someone who's brought catheters to market. I imagine this is finding someone who fits what you're trying to do is probably a little bit more challenging. And at the end of the day, like you said, you've spent years researching this, like no one knows this At least you're, you know, no one knows buzzy and pain care labs like, like you do.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I am the only vibracool subject matter expert that there is. There are a lot of different vibration experts, but in terms of musculoskeletal pain, specific frequencies, understanding the, the way that thermal and these vibration frequencies interact, that's, I'm, I'm going to have to stay on as chief science officer, no matter what. But, um, but the other part of the question, which I think is really worth thinking about, you know, I told you that I met with the children's healthcare people today going and talking about physical therapy, um, particularly using VibraCol for phantom limb pain mm-hmm. and, and because we've had some success recently and they had a, a patient who had some problems. And so I went to teach them about, here's, here's what we know. And this is why it works for phantom limb pain. Um, I missed the hospital. I mean, I walked in and I was just like, Oh, you know, I, I did love practicing medicine and of course all the procedures. Mm-hmm. Um, But, but this has to get done now. And I'm just stubborn and I need to see it through True. when I quit the hard moral thing was my, I've always raised my kids. Um, if you get trained society is supporting that. And so you owe it back to society to keep practicing and you have to pay back what you've done. And and so I felt morally like to stop practicing medicine was was going back on the societal contract that I had made and told the kids about. And so I didn't want to be a bad role model. And so in talking to them, my daughter, who was, I think, I don't know if she's 12 at the time, maybe maybe younger. She's like, mom, 50,000 people all over the world are using your device to take their medicine every night. Your karmic book is balanced. <laughs> and I don't know where karmic book is balanced came from because um, no clue, but but uh, but it was important. And that was, and it, and it really did make a difference. I, I don't think it's ethical to take a spot in medical school and go straight into working for a pharma company. I don't mm-hmm. think it's ethical to um, decide you're gonna stay home with your kids. You know, if you took somebody's spot in med school, you need to go out there and be a doctor and you need to know what it is to help a patient through life and what it is to have them die. And that's your job, that's what you signed up for. Mm -hmm. So to do something different, um, it's part of, I think why we haven't taken money is, is to make sure it's the most right thing and to make sure that it is worth the sacrifice of not taking care of kids on the front line.
0: Gotcha. I'm curious, you know, with ER, you can, you know, you can do some shift work and stuff like that. Did you try to juggle it? Did you try to do like run this full time or essentially have two jobs at once, if you will, and kind of reach that point where you need, know, you, you know, the, Either it's I'm all in on pain care labs or I'm not kind of thing. Was that, did you kind of reach that point? <laughs>
1: not just that it's um, it's, if you're doing a major NIH trial, doing research full-time is full-time it, mm-hmm. you know, you can't just half-ass it. And so running the company and getting the grant and now doing the research is, is more than a 60 hour a week job. I did try for a while, I took a sabbatical at one point. Um, I was, there were times that I was only working 12 shifts a month, but even, especially in emergency, trying to do a shift and then recover from that shift. Mm-hmm. And I think actually when I was in at UT Southwestern, I think I may have only been six shifts a month. Um, there were longer shifts, but still what you find was, no mind you, I'm raising three kids at the same time. So um, yeah, I was fried crispy but Mm -hmm. I was also, I was also still doing research at the time. So I had my company and I was doing research and I was running the research division at Spanish, right? I had three kids and I was um, starting the society, you know, being a founding member of the society for procedural sedation. And I was doing lectures and I was doing all of this stuff. So trying to, to keep one foot in, I think one piece of advice is that when you get overwhelmed and burned out, it's a lot better to just cut an entire section of stuff out rather than try to moderate because it's just like dieting. You know, it's a lot easier to just say, I am not going to eat this for a period of time. Mm-hmm. That's easier to be truthful than um, to just try to, to moderate. Cause as soon as you're tired and your ego depleted, then your willpower to just keep it to a certain number of hours, just dwindles. And then you find yourself working 80 hours a week and missing your kids graduations. So.
0: No, I think that's great advice. I want to, I just want to close out here a little bit on talking about some of the more musculoskeletal applications that you've, you know, you've come up with, um, which I think is interesting from what I understand, you've iterated a new device that's, you know, from Buzzy, which was more for needle or needle fear. And then now you have a more of a, I think it's called viral as you mentioned for, uh, MSK pain, I guess what, I guess, where do you see this kind of playing in? Cause there's already like those machines where, you know, you basically, I think you've seen them. I think it's like Bragg makes them where you have like super cooled around like knees after people have like ACL surgery or things like that. I remember working with some ortho surgeons in med school where they would like prescribe those for their patients and things like that. I guess, how does, you know, this play into that kind of marketplace? Cause, or, or maybe you are trying to f- work in conjunction with those devices rather than replace them?
1: Yeah, it's definitely more of a in, in conjunction with. I mean, in some ways, yeah, we're cold, we're we're game ready to go. But pain is the brain's opinion of how safe you are, and mm-hmm. if you are stuck and sitting with something that's just making you cold or even cold mm-hmm. and compression, um, that doesn't make you feel safe, and it doesn't help with the pain. So I think we all know now that for surgery, you want to get people moving as fast as possible. That mm-hmm. motion is the best medicine. So, the first devices we did were purely, I mean, they actually are buzzy. It just says vibra cool on it, but it is buzzy because it gotcha. What matters is the frequency. The thing that the frequency does that's good for MSK is not only does it more efficiently block pain than anything else um, from a, from a, if you're going to go gate control, um, but it is four times more effective than tens at round joints for pain and the vibration frequency for overuse injuries. It separates muscle fibers atraumatically. So delayed onset muscle soreness. I mean, there's really, there's, there's people all over the world that are doing all of this research. And now we know to describe things with what frequency are we using? What amplitude are we using? What orientation are we using? What duration are we using? All of those parameters change the effect. So looking at um, empowerment and having something that a patient can use to put where they need it. That's a really important part of what we're doing. So the, the devices are small enough. I mean, there's like 28 inches for the knee when you put the, the vibracle in the pocket and then the ice packs or heat packs are really important oh, wow. because sometimes people want ice, sometimes they want they want heat. Sometimes you need ice for anti-inflammatory, but you don't want to stop blood flow vibration vasodilates, So you don't have that whole, do I ice it? Do I heat it thing? It's really whatever's going to make the pain better because the vibration is going to increase blood flow. Um, other thing that's interesting is post-op once your blocks have gone away and the pain descends and you're at home, if you don't want to take opioids, the best way to, uh, to address it is giving patients something where they've got control over their own pain. And so these ice packs are so thin, And you can put them proximal um, with the vibration, put them proximal to the pain, because it doesn't matter if you're in the same dermatome, it doesn't matter whether you're putting it directly on the muscle. Now, delayed onset muscle soreness, yeah, you have to put it directly on the muscle. Spasm, yeah, you got to put it directly on. But if you're trying to block pain, patients can put this on proximal, and then they can walk around with it. So if you've got bandages on, it's still going to reach the effect that you need. And it's going to go lower. The other thing is, we did make a really cool, slimmer design that can attach to braces. So oh, cool! Because if because vibration transmits beautifully through solids, not so well through water. Mm-hmm. Um, but so instead of the buzzy device, which is about you know an inch thick, this one is only about uh two thirds of an inch, and this goes beautifully on like um, you know, tennis or something, so it. You're going to use it with the ice, and it's going to increase blood flow to areas that are not healing well. It's going to decrease inflammation if you use the ice with it. And um, it also works for stretching. So, if you don't have time to stretch before you go work out, you can just stick this sucker on for five minutes. Five minutes of mechanical stimulation is equivalent to 15 minutes of massage and 30 minutes of stretching. Wow. So I know, right? And there's all this stuff, most of it's done in Italy and in. France, a lot of, and then, um, and then in California, but a lot of this musculoskeletal research and recovery research, it's also anabolic. It makes muscles grow bigger. So if you've got somebody who's in a nursing home, who's not moving, um, putting this on actually increases muscle mass and not through twitching like tens, but simply through bathing the muscles, separating the muscle fibers, giving them space to grow. And then it increases growth hormone, testosterone, and decreases LDH. So you've got more like a, you know, a growth broth around the muscle that when you put the vibration on and studies are different. Sometimes I do it 20 minutes, twice a day, sometimes once a day, but this is really the forefront, this whole energy frequency vibration thing. You know, it, I would add duration because mm-hmm. I, it really does matter. Um, not to mention what I'm doing with harmonics. Nobody's doing harmonics and the idea of putting like, you know, with the lithotripsy you know, we just had ultrasounds for a while. And then all of a sudden, if you put ultrasounds from three different directions, you can bust up a kidney stone.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: there's definitely fun stuff that is coming down the pike with this and um, stroke recovery. There's a whole meta-analysis by Marillo et al, 2014, vibration alone for stroke recovery. Um, you know, again, I mentioned the the Uh, phantom limb pain,
2: but Mm -hmm. you
1: can put it proximal to the stump and then you're blocking the transmission signal of pain up to the spine. there's just, you know, and then having the empowerment of it can actually reverse chronic pain. So I get super excited about it, but yeah, basically it's just, you know, it's, it's buzzy that's fitting the different body parts better, but, uh, but you know, if you can block a kid's needle pain by 88%. That's kind of the highest hanging fruit, you know, knee pain from a, a surgery that's healing. that's not infected. That should be really easy.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah. No, I imagine the, the applications are endless. Like you said, like phantom limb pain, like CPRS, I'm thinking, you know, but like you said, like you're starting a trial with low back pain, I guess, where do you see this fitting in? Do you see Orthopedic surgeons prescribing this, you know, as part of you know, like the how they prescribe physical therapy, or do you see this as more something where it's on the patient, like they'll buy at their their you know their local drugstore, or I guess where do you where do you see the marketplace uh, for this uh, going forward?
1: Yeah. So first of all, CRPS is um, an interesting thing. Just to point out, this mm-hmm. works with normal nerves. So
0: oh, okay, gotcha.
1: Shingles, anything where you've got a neuropathy where the nerves are misbehaving we have had people use it for crps with good effect we've also had people who have used it and it causes a huge amount of pain
2: interesting
1: weird. the the whole plot technology platform works with normally behaving nerves so gotcha. it's neuromodulation yeah. for normal nerves um you can have chronic pain but it's still but you, you can't have nerves that are, are destroyed or atrophic gotcha um, the question you ask is one that everybody needs to figure out which is the Uh, customer discovery and part of customer discovery is what is the channel? How do they get this? Who's going to want this? And when you're the inventor, you're like, everybody wants it for everything all the time. And so, so narrowing that down sooner is a good idea. Different countries we found it's really different. Um, The fact that uh, you might have people who are doing CrossFit and exercising and training in Portugal, who that's, that's where it works here in this country, we are so pill oriented. Um, one of the things that we wanted to do as pediatricians was say, use bugs, not drugs, you know, use, we started with try to use buzzy or lady buzz when your kid has a bee sting, when your kid bumps themselves. And, and actually a lot of kids, I mean, once they've, once they've got a buzzy, they know if they fall down, they immediately go run and get the buzzy. Cause if you put it on, it stops hurting. So it's mm-hmm. a very easy uh, feedback loop. But what we think would be the best um, from our research is to eliminate home opioids, which I think should be the goal. If you really need, if you're hurting that bad, you should still be inpatient. So to eliminate home opioids, we need to get people to not be as afraid of pain and to feel like they've got some power over it. So if you have time before a surgery, then I would want someone to be prescribed it by their doctor before surgery to say, take this home, get used to it. Decrease the pain now that we're doing surgery on for you, but you're going to use it when you go home. So I want you comfortable with it. So if you are really in pain and you put it on, it's an immediate, oh, so once you, if you're really in pain, it's great. If you're in mild pain, it's not that good. So we, this should not be for, for weenie pain. This should be for, you know, you, you are thinking, do I do this or do I do an opioid? It's it's that intensity. Um, after a workout, when somebody's knee is killing them, or they've got you know one, but they're it always hurts, and so they're working through the pain because it's just bone on bone. That pain is the right kind of pain for this. But my idea would be that we have a low-priced one with a single unit that can be available in CVS or over the counter anywhere, Amazon, PainCareLabs.com, TM, um, you know that kind of thing. But then getting the healthcare system to recognize that this is an extraordinarily cheap, reusable, and effective way to prevent bounce backs, to quit having to do IV, Tylenol, or things that don't work, Um, and and to start in on what all chronic pain patients say they want, which is options. Options Mm -hmm. engage the part of the brain that does hope, and also the part of the brain that does chronic pain and catastrophizing. So if you can replace this, oh my gosh, I'm going to feel pain forever. Oh, what do I do? I can't get out of this. If you can replace that with, I've got ViberCool in the other room. I could use heat or cold. I'm, I'm going to just wait for 30 more minutes. It turns out that people actually can tolerate more pain if they have hope, if they know they can do something soon that will help, then they can tolerate pain for longer. So, so that, that would be my goal. I would want this to be um, on a muscle during PT to increase pain tolerance and increase, uh, range of motion, then ice and vibration afterwards, probably do vibration only before you go to PT. So you can get started. And then when you're immediately post-surgery, you use it in the hospital instead of other things, because then the patient's actual orienting where it goes, um, and having the hospital in with two units, so you get stereotactic and get the harmonic effects. That's that's my final, that's my ultimate dream. So we'd have the hospital market and then we'd have the the over-the-counter single vibration unit market.
0: Interesting. That's that's really cool. Um so what's I think what's really cool is it like you said, some of those cooling machines, I remember you have like you can't go anywhere. You have to like sit there while you while you use it versus with uh your device, you can, you know, like you said, go to PT and use it or go to you know use it while you're you know walking around or doing
1: things. It's like while that. you're driving.
0: Yeah. You
1: know? <laughs> I mean, I've actually Um, when I'm having tennis elbow, but it's actually for swimming, but if I don't have time to stretch, I'll just stick it on my elbow as I'm driving to the pool instead of stretching. It's a a lazy person's, um, (laughs) secret way to stretch when you don't really have time to stretch. And yeah, I think that that's, um, there, there are a lot of different places where it can be useful, but the biggest one overall would be helping to convince people that, we don't have one right answer that multiple choice tests help train people for diagnosis, but it's not the right answer when you're trying to fix somebody. And when you want to fix somebody, our device isn't the right answer either. It's having options. So at least we have vibration and heat and cold and positioning and the potential for using dual, dual areas, but people also need to know about magnesium and they need to know about making plans and distraction and they need to know about acceptance and commitment therapy. And they need to know all the stuff that we don't learn in med school. And if we can get people to take some responsibility for their own health and pain, maybe we can help them to think differently about pain in general.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. One last thing I want to ask you about you I remember hearing you talk about on another podcast was, you know, so many, especially physician vendors too, I think get caught up in their idea or their technology or how cool they they the gadget device would be, but I think really embracing like the actual problem that you're trying to solve, which you've clearly have demonstrated that, you know, you've done tons of research and become a really, you know, an expert through doing this in the, you know, the area of pain and that kind of thing. I guess what are your, maybe just some closing thoughts on that. And like, you know, how, and I think it, what's interesting is physicians can get caught up in the technology, but really they are, that's their, our, one of our biggest value adds is, is that we know the clinical landscape. We know what, you know, you know, we are on the ground treating patients and know what can you know best serve them in a way. I guess so. I guess maybe kind of some closing thoughts on that.
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, The the quote that you're referring to is, "Don't fall in love with your solution; fall in love with the problem." Mm-hmm. And I would tell a very quick anecdote. I did actually start a company in an undergrad. Come to think of it, the um, The Yale low up school supplies. And the guy who, maybe this is why I don't have a partner, the guy who was my partner in the business absolutely loved uh, reinforcer rings for his paper. He thought they were great and he used them all the time. And everybody's going to use these. And so human beings are bad at knowing how their baseline differs from other people's baselines. And so we invested in a whole bunch of these um, paper reinforcers and found that nobody bought them, nobody cared. The problem was not reinforcing the paper. The problem was the price of the paper. So for him, it was, I don't wanna waste a piece of paper and rip it. For everybody else, it was just, their paper's too darn expensive. And so I think that one thing that, that physicians can run into the trap of is we are so specialized, especially now, that we see how this can work in our environment. And, and we don't talk to people and we don't appreciate that we may not be the center of the bell curve, that our experience may be different. Yesterday I saw on MedPage an article about a sexual health presentation at a conference by an OBGYN who was doing research on vibrators for vaginismus and vulvodynia. I called her up, I emailed her, she was home, we talked for an hour and she had no idea any of the physiology of why vibrators were working. But when I showed her Vibra cool, she was like, Oh my gosh, that would fit right on the labia. I mean, talk about vulvodynia. That is so perfect. The shape of that is amazing. Well, I'm Peds. I mean, I'm Peds emergency and yeah, we get straddle injuries, but, but it's not a market that I would think of. So, so that's really the, the falling in love with the problem. So the problem for us, I thought was vaccination fear. Mm-hmm. And it turned out the problem was pain, and that fear was actually a big contributor to how pain works. So the problem was not just how can we increase blood flow and separate muscle fibers and and decrease the transmission of pain, it was also how do we give people power over pain? So mm-hmm. that whole road to understanding, what's actually happening in someone gave us much more leverage to, to make something broader than just, here's a catheter you stick in there. That's got a better valve.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. No. And I think it gets, you know, the example you brought up. And then also, like you said, I mean, you're not an orthopedics orthopedicist by training. Sure. You've seen your share, I'm sure of MSK injuries in your time, but, you know, being able to adapt and apply this to, you know, not the, very first idea your clinical need you had, uh, I think it's definitely demonstrates that as well. That's awesome. Yeah.
1: Hey, going to uh, going <laughs> to talk to the PT people today. They're like, um, I would put this on for range of motion during, and they were the ones who said put it on in cryocuff, because if you put it in cryocuff, they don't have the circulation thing that Gamerady does, but they're cheaper. So that's what people use. If they can't afford a game ready, but if you put it on cryocuff, if you put the vibration on cryocuff, they're like all our doctors would use it all the time. You know, that, that feedback and customer discovery is definitely a huge, important part.
0: Awesome. awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, to talk with us and and tell us about your story and and where the new exciting uh, horizons. The the last thing we ask every guest is when you're not doing all these things, what, how do you spend your, your time outside of work? Where do you, where do you find that balance, I guess, in your life?
1: (laughs) Um, Travel and growing herbs to make craft cocktails.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Get some of those umbrella drinks, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Really,
1: uh, you know, um, Maria Congenus, uh, which is a curry plant for a bourbon drink or lavender or other things like that. Yes. I'm uh, I like Alcatect. I think mixologist is a little trite, but Alcatect is really where I'm, where I'm going for, from a hobby standpoint.
0: Cool. Cool. Awesome. Well, um, thanks again for, you know, taking time and uh, we really appreciate your insights. I guess the last thing is where, where can people find more about you on, as far as like pain care labs, your website, those types of things.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Talking about branding and making a website and failing uh, total <laughs> other time to other, other things to talk about, but uh, yes, paincarelabs.com labs.com. Buzzy and VibraCool are both on Amazon as well as for $5 less on PainCareLabs.com. And for your patients, they are FSA, HSA um, covered. So if they've got an HSA or FSA card, they can use those. But, uh, but PainCareLabs.com has a whole lot of videos, explanations, and science, as well as that's where you can buy them.
0: Awesome. Awesome. We will definitely link to that in uh, the show notes for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you, Amy. We really, really appreciate it.
1: Maxwell's delight and best of luck with your endeavors. And if anybody wants to contact me, do it through LinkedIn.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. More episodes are available on our website at dviacademy.com, our YouTube channel. They're also available on Spotify and Apple podcasts. Also on our website, you can find our video courses for anatomy, biochemistry and histology and they're available as month to month packages. They're also available as a combo package where you can get all three courses in one. Our website also has a store where you can find our outline format textbooks for anatomy, biochemistry, and histology. All textbooks are available in paperback version and as eBooks as well. These textbooks complement our video courses and provide a nice addition to the learning experience allowing you to focus on the learning and not having to write anything down on our website we also provide a free clinical cases video series called davinci cases davinci cases aims to help you learn how to answer usmle questions and apply concepts that you learn in our courses to answering those questions our cases cover a variety of topics and organ systems and they're updated frequently with new cases and then lastly on our website you can find our blog which has interesting articles that cover medical history, important figures in medicine, and innovations in medicine. Again, thank you for listening to this episode of the Da Vinci Hour, brought to you by Da Vinci Academy. Please be sure to tune in for our next episode.